Hi, I'm Morvan Westfield, and you're listening to Vampires, Witches, and Geeks, a podcast about vampires, modern witches, and geeky stuff. This is episode 21, Interview with Linda Hilburn. This episode was originally recorded on June 11th, 2009. Linda Hilburn writes paranormal fiction. More specifically, she writes vampire books. After a childhood filled with invisible friends, sightings of dead relatives, and a fascination with the occult, turning to the paranormal was a no-brainer. In her other reality, she makes her living as a licensed psychotherapist, hypnotherapist, professional psychic tarot reader, university instructor, and workshop presenter. Her first novel, The Vampire Shrink, which introduced us to Denver psychologist Kismet Knight and a hidden vampire underworld, was released by Medallion Press October 2007. The second book in the series, Dark Harvest, was released October 2008. Several more books are planned. Her short story, Blood Song, is part of the Mammoth Book of Paranormal Romance anthology, which was released April 2009. So today we have Linda Hilburn, who is author of, well, I know one of her novels is Vampire Shrink, which I've always loved that title. Hi, Linda. Hey there, Marvin. How are you? Not bad. So tell me, I noticed in your bio that it says that you were writing uh, nonfiction up until 2004, and then you made the switch to fiction. Did you start out with vampire novels? Well, you know, I've always been a vampire fan, but I'll admit my ignorance that until around 2004, I didn't know how huge it was. I mean, I had just been reading, you know, Bram Stoker and Anne Rice, and and I didn't know that there was this whole other category called um, uh, paranormal romance. I didn't know. Yes. I didn't know. And then once I discovered it, it's like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. And that's really what got me excited about the possibility of writing fiction. Were you a old Dark Shadows fan by any chance? All of it, yeah. Yes. It's just all of it. I mean, it's kind of campy, you know, sometimes to look back at the episodes now. But it was great. You know, the weirdest thing in, with your background as... Um, a psychologist, is it? A psychotherapist. Psychotherapist. Right. With your background as a psych- psychotherapist, you can probably read something into this, but I remember that I had the biggest crush on Barnabas Collins. <laughs> that and, makes sense to me. And then I was homesick, I don't know, maybe about five years ago, and I happened to turn on the Sci-Fi Channel, and they were replaying Dark Shadows from the beginning, which I had oh. never seen the very first episodes. I don't think I did either. And I couldn't believe it. Barnabas Collins must have been in his mid-40s. And then I said to myself, oh, my God, I had a crush on a man that was old enough to be my father. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I know. But that was even part of the allure in, in the earlier vampire things. You know, it was a little bit, there was a little bit of father figure stuff going on there in, in the beginning. Wow. You know, mesmerizing these young women. And then the sexuality was not as overt as it is now. That's true. It was always implied. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. 
And plus, things were a little, you know, kind of uh, iffy in some of the some of the vampire books, where the vampire was not not really particular about who he snacked on, whether it was a relative or a villager. True. You True. Know? So it's like we kind of got the line a little murky there. You know, and there's probably some some social and psychological reasons for that, but you know, in fact, probably complex reasons for all that. Yeah, I think in in many of the um, old tales, they started with their feeding on their family. Yeah, it was. So yeah, you could understand the wife, but their own children right. and everything right. like that. Yeah, and actually, you know, not to get icky, but that's not so different than what happened in families anyway. You know, that the wives and the children and, and the extended family were sort of seen as property to do with what you wanted. Hmm. And lot, lots of things were going on, not just snacking on somebody's neck. That's true. I never thought of it that way. So tell us about The Vampire Shrink. I noticed there are how many books in that series? Um, that's the first one, and the second book in the series is called Dark Harvest. And that came out last last October. Obviously, with your background in psychotherapy, you decided to write what you know. Yeah. And I just read an excerpt of your book online, and it's very interesting. Give us a, a quick rundown of the story. A client comes into, the it's Dr. Kismet Knight. Kismet Knight. Comes into her office and claims she knows vampires. Yeah, she claims she wants to be a vampire. And, and Kismet's thinking, well, of course, you know, she's really, she's me. She's an idealized version of me. And so when someone comes into my office and they tell me a rather fantastical tale, I don't necessarily just like jump up and down and say, oh my gosh, you're an alien or you're possessed or you're a vampire. I just kind of would sit there and say, well, tell me about being a vampire. And so that's what Kismet did when this young woman came into her office. And the tales were just, you know, I mean, if you, what's that old saying about if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail? Right. Well, to a psychologist, you know, there is, there's a logical explanation to any kind of weird behavior you can imagine. So it takes her quite a while before she's willing to step out of her scientist role and allow for the possibility that something paranormal could be happening. And actually, of course, meeting the gorgeous vampire Devereaux. And that changes everything because he has an immediate effect, a physical, physiological, uh, energetic, emotional effect on her just by walking in the room because he's so powerful. His energy, his vibe. And so she doesn't know what to make of that. And it's not just, I notice in reading one of the excerpts that your vampires, like Christopher Lee vampires, the, you know, the mesmerizing eyes, yeah, or even sure. Bella Lugosi. You bet, you bet. Well, they, they have a lot of mental powers. And using the eyes to focus is just something that we humans have always done. Mm-hmm. So giving the vampires kind of enhanced power in that way, you know, we it's like when you're with the, uh, you see a predator out in the wild, you know, you're always told never, never to meet the eyes of that predator, right? Because it gives them the message that you're prey, and so same thing with the vampires. So what other of the vampire myths do they share? Can they go out in sunlight? 
No, they're not out in the sunlight. I, I like that part. I like that they're hidden. I like yes. that nobody knows about them and that they're in the darkness. But it doesn't have anything to do with good or evil or anything like that. I don't really explain why they're just nocturnal creatures. It's right. part of, it's part of uh, their species. Mm-hmm. That they, I don't ever say anything. I don't say anything about them having a sun allergy or anything. They're just very nocturnal creatures, and when the sun is out, they are dead. So I haven't really done a lot of explaining of that. If one of them were caught out in the open for some reason, would they fry or? Probably. I mean, uh-huh. I always thought that was fun. Yes, <laughs> same you here. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of like that. I, I, li- I like a lot of the basic thing. I left out a lot of the, uh, well, all, actually. I left out all the religious overtones. Right. So my va- my vampires have no problem with religious objects, and that none of that affects them. But everything else in the old mythology is probably in my vampire's world. Right. Now, this is an interesting thing. I'm a big fan of Charlene Harris and True Blood. Sure. One of the things that she has in her mythos is silver vampire. You know, I know werewolves, you shoot them with a silver bullet and that's bad news. But it had never, I don't remember hearing anything about silver in vampires before. No, I don't think it's been, it's been a big thing. That was mostly werewolves. So that was kind of creative for her to add that in. Right. Yeah. And that's the inter- To me, that's one of the interesting changes that has happened in uh, vampire fiction is that people build their own mythos. There are certain things you expect, like a vampire has fangs. But even then, I've read two books now where vampires didn't have fangs. Oh, sure. There's lots of books where they don't have fangs where they have to actually cut or or the blood is extracted some other way or they don't necessarily drink directly from humans. But uh, that's the biggest thing for me. That's huge. Mm-hmm. That's one of the reasons I think that women are so incredibly fixated on vampires because of the, the blood thing. It's is- like, think about how intimate that is. Oh, that's true. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's the most intimate thing. That this being, he just needs my very life's blood to live. Mm-hmm. And that it's closer. I mean, if you combine it with sex, I think that's how come it's just so popular. But the idea of somebody, it's so taboo. It's so not done that the idea of this man, this being, you know, so close, like sucking from the neck or the breast or other places that they like to suck the blood from, there's just nothing more intimate than that. Yeah, I've always seen the blood thing from the neck or a vein as, you know, the drawing of the power, that the sort of um, physical sensation one would get from that. But you're yeah. you're right, the intimacy is oh, something perfect. strong, too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and because it's taboo mm-hmm. in our society, you know, we really, we have some uh, real resistances to blood, and we're so attracted at the same time. So that's just another one of the secrets of the vampires is that they live on this taboo substance that that they take from us. And it, it's just, I think women are just very drawn to that. At least that's what I hear. Mm-hmm. Yours says fangs. My vampires have fangs? Yes. Is that what you said? Yes, yes. they do. And um, this is an interesting term I hadn't heard until recently, but 
Are they fangs that are always there, or are they erectile fangs? Well, they're retractable fangs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that they can come in and out. That the uh, the vampires they have more control over them the older they get. And in the beginning, the fangs are sort of just stuck there because mm-hmm. the vampire just doesn't have the the mind the mind control to make the fangs go in and out. And if if the fangs are in in even a, a, a medium-aged vampire, and that vampire gets very angry or very aroused, the things come out by themselves. Right. Now, you said very old. How old is Devereaux? Devereaux is 800 years old. Ah, and where did he come from originally? He came from, I've left that sort of vague, mm-hmm. somewhere, somewhere in Europe in that kind of period where Things were very different than they are now as far as defining nationalities. And there were, and I talk about him coming from a Druid lineage. And, and so it was all sort of uh, old England and, and France and Germany and, and kind of all undisclosed area where all the people were sort of mashed together. Mm-hmm. And they didn't have the delineations that they have now. Right. Well, even well, in, I, did, yeah. I was going to say, even in, well, the last century, you know, with the wars in Europe, boundaries changed. Yes, yes. And so I, I didn't want, I didn't really want to attribute a particular nationality to Devereaux. And even the name Devereaux, the spelling of it, is not necessarily French. It just comes from that sort of that time period where all across that whole vast area, there were some similarities. Uh-huh. Now, you had said that Devereaux was a species. Does, does that mean he's an alien or once he becomes, how do they become vampires? Well, you know, I, I haven't even really disclosed that in the books yet. Ooh, okay. But they've talked a lot about how it's not easy to become a vampire. Mm-hmm. That becoming a vampire, um, there's two ways. You know, of course, you can be, you can be forcefully turned, but it's not easy. It's not like you know, I'll drink your blood and you drink mine, and the deal is done. There's more to it than that, and it's quite violent. But the other way of becoming a vampire is chosen on purpose, and so it involves because becoming a vampire also has, I guess, what I would call higher consciousness implications. Mm-hmm. Because when, like someone like Devereaux, who's been alive for 800 years, um, there's lots of things that he could have done, and he probably did some of them in earlier times. But he decided that the acquisition of knowledge and wisdom was a worthy goal. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the older vampires, not all of them, but a lot of them are, I don't know, uh, enlightened almost. Mm-hmm. Like they, they have just spent their long lives you know, exploring and learning and developing their higher consciousness aspects, which turns out that even we humans are capable of doing way more than we even know we are. And that's just the truth. That's based on fact. Well, that that lends something more to something of a romance, too. I know a lot of women I know would fantasize more of not only the strong type, but the one who was cultured and educated and... Right and wanted to learn things. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, Devereaux's kind of bossy, but just because he's not really good with the things we consider basic. 
because he spent an awful lot of time in what his, you know, his enemies would call his lofty pursuit. You know, that he really has been developing his, his levels of mind. And so a lot of the things that we human consider, humans consider important, Devereaux doesn't even pay attention to. So he and Kismet have often a lot of problems because Devereaux just doesn't think that way. It doesn't occur to him to be politically correct. Well, another thing occurred to me the other day was, um, for instance, I currently live in Massachusetts, but I have not lived here all my life. But at some point, you know, I lived here longer than I had ever lived anywhere else. So my influence will obviously be where I've lived the most. And so you think of that a vampire, they were only human for what, maybe 20, 30 years, and then they'll be vampire for hundreds. Right. So it's hard for the human thing to survive because that was so long ago in such a short, short time of their life. Right, right. Or existence, I should say. That's true. It's interesting you're talking about how becoming a vampire is very difficult and sounds like painful. You said it was violent. Well, that's one way, yeah. Uh And that's what happens to them when, like, it's according to somebody else's will as opposed to their own. I see. I read the Twilight series by uh, Stephanie Mayer. Sure. In hers, the bite is venomous, and the change is extremely painful, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, that makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. I think it does, because it it, it just really can't be that easy to change from one literally species to another. Yeah, I think the first time I saw a hint of that was when I read... Or saw it, maybe it was really shown in the movie of um, Interview with the Vampire. Yeah. That the change is just because your body is changing, sort of like the werewolf, how painful that would be yeah. to have those muscles suddenly pop up. Oh, absolutely, because you have to die. Right. And so it's the death process. And then I, I, I think probably it's even more than the death process because it's like a natural death and then there's another death. Mm. There's a death into something that's not alive. Mm. So uh, you can really pretty much just kind of run run with it and go wild and crazy. But I like it when it's more of a challenge. Yes. Instead of, I remember reading in one of the old ones where, uh, the old movies where if you just were drained of your blood, you became a vampire, which is way too easy. Right. That is. But it's understandable because of the lo- a lot of the early mythology was pretty simple and straightforward, just kind of basic fears that we all have as humans. We fear all predators like that, and vampires were just a very terrifying one because they were human, and they knew how to mingle among us, and we couldn't always recognize them right away. Right. Uh, What are you working on now? Well, I'm working on the third book in the series, which is tentatively called Blood Therapy, probably going to take me a while to finish it. I'll tell you, because when I wrote the other two, I was still just working for myself in private practice. And then about a year and a half ago, I uh, agreed to work at a community mental health center four days a week. And I'll tell you, I am just exhausted. Yes. You just don't think about that until, until you do it every day. And you get up at the crack of dawn and you and you sit with clients and it's kind of intense and serious and heavy and yes. and then you come home, you know, probably later than you meant to, and you just wanna just collapse into bed. 
Right. So it's like somehow I've got to get my writing discipline back because I miss it. The thing I found my um, second book anyway, getting up early in the morning was the only way I could do it because you're right, you're just too tired at the end of the day. But getting up like at four, or, well, never four, but at five to write yeah. just seems so such a horrible torture in itself. I know. And I have to get up an hour after that anyway just to get ready for work. Right. Yeah, so, yeah, it's a challenge. But it, it's sometimes I look at authors who they have jobs and they have a bunch of kids, and it's like, how do you do that? Exactly. It's just astounding. So if they can do it, it's like I have no, I have no excuse for whining. Right. Just a matter of discipline. Okay. One thing, let me explain to our listeners. Uh, One of the things I do is, because I try to keep my episodes short, is that I have the interview first, and then the next episode is going to be the reading. So for all intents and purposes, you, dear audience, are going to say goodbye to Linda now, and I'm going to stay on the line and listen to her read, but you won't hear that until next episode. (laughs) So let me thank you for the interview, Linda, and listeners, oh, thank you. come back next time for the reading. Thanks so much. It's been great. For more information, visit Linda's website at www.lindahilburnauthor.com. And that's Linda, L-Y-N-D-A, and Hilburn is H-I-L-B-U-R-N. That wraps it up for this episode. You can find the show notes at www.vampireswitchesandgeeks.com. Be sure to look for the next episode where Linda will read from Dark Harvest, the second book in her Kismet Night Vampire Psychology series. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I look forward to hearing from you. You can leave comments at www.vampireswitchesandgeeks.com or at my main website, I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I look forward to hearing from you. You can leave comments at www.vampireswitchesandgeeks.com or at my main website, www.morvinwestfield.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast is copyright 2009 Morvin Westfield, but it's licensed under a Creative Commons license. Please see www.vampireswitchesandgeeks.com for details.